Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the producer of this show. I'm thrilled to present this week's guest, Madison Moore, who's a true multi-hyphenate, an artist, scholar, DJ, and assistant professor of modern culture and media at Brown University, who also holds a PhD in American Studies from Yale. Madison performs internationally at a number of art institutions and nightclubs. Most recently, they held a nightlife residency at The Kitchen in New York. As part of the six-week program, Madison curated a series of public programs with DJs, artists, scholars, and queer nightlife performers, and gave a performance lecture about queer nightlife called There's Always Energy for Dancing. Madison is fascinating because he sees his work as an academic researcher, performer, and DJ as being intrinsically interconnected, and their mission is to find ways to connect theory and practice. In this conversation with journalist and former RBMA editor-in-chief Aaron Goncher, which was recorded on the heels of April's pop conference in New York, Madison reflects on how he was first inspired by figures like DJ Spooky, who brought ideas and academics to party spaces. In Madison's lectures now, he teaches about the historical context around dance music and the significance of the club for queer Black folks, explaining that he sees fun performance and eccentric style as critical ways to spread ideas. And I think that for me, I am most excited to be able to be environment in environments since my work, this work is about club culture to be in the thing, right? So to me, it's even more important when promoters and people involved in their local scenes and DJs and upcoming DJs and nightlife scholars or up and coming nightlife scholars are there in the audience and they see what's possible and what you can do with knowledge. You know, it doesn't have to be this thing that's gatekept behind like a JSTOR portal, you know, or like some sort of institutional access thing, you know, that you can bring the knowledge, bring the ideas, bring the fun out, you know, to, to, to folks where they are, you know. He also discusses his 2018 book, Fabulous, The Rise of the Beautiful Eccentric, his issue of Eflux magazine with Mackenzie Wark called Black Rave, and his forthcoming publication, How to Get Your Nightlife, a book about queer club culture under contract at Yale University Press. Accompanying the book will be a fashion film about queer nightlife. This is such a refreshing talk that infuses really radical and critical new ways to think about history and the club into our collective conversations about DJing and dance floors. So thanks for tuning in. And without further ado, here is Madison Moore. It's not often that we speak to someone who has PhD techno as tags on their SoundCloud mixes, but that's indeed who Madison R. Moore is. Um, the professor is in. Welcome to the RA Exchange, Madison. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, when we were first setting up this interview, you were really bouncing between time zones. And at one point, you told me that you were in Nebraska, which is not exactly what I would think of as a hotbed of club culture. Can you tell me what you were getting up to there? Yeah, Um I was actually performing. So I do this um, performance lecture that is trying to bring together um, the club, the DJ set, a lecture into one, and the party and dancing and it collapsed into one thing. And so I had been invited to do this at uh, this place called the Bemis Center for, for the Arts in Omaha, Nebraska. Super cool, had a great time. I was there for a week um, and just kind of working on the show. And it was, it's actually interesting because I'm from the Midwest. I'm from, you know, Ferguson, Missouri. So it's always great for me to be able to go back to the Midwest and talk to the young 
queer folks. Um, and so that's always a good part of the performance afterwards um, to, to like chat with folks about their dreams and what they're doing and what they're working on and how they're building scenes in their own place and everything. And it's a recurring theme that people often in these small spaces want to keep you there. They're like, don't leave. We're here and we're queer. We're here and we're queer right here. You know, don't move to New York. Don't leave, you know, stay here with us. So yeah, that's what I was up to there. I was going to ask what the different responses were like in the context of an Omaha versus you presenting something in San Francisco or New York or Chicago. Is it mainly about the audience and their own experience of club culture or how does it change between these different cities? So um, the lecture kind of started um, in 2022, I was invited to be the first nightlife resident at The Kitchen in New York, which is this experimental performance institution that has a long history of multimedia and kind of performance art, music as well. Um, and the the lecture was set into this installation by the artist Sadie Barnett called the New Eagle Creek Saloon, which is the f which was the first Black-owned gay bar in San Francisco, which was oper operating in the 90s. And so with the lecture, um, when we did it at the kitchen, it was kind of site specific to New York. And as I've been invited to do it in these other places, actually, I figured out to actually make it site specific to those spaces as well, because I don't know what's going on in Omaha, Nebraska, right? Or so. And so I did a lecture, for example, there in conversation with this amazing drag queen called Felicia Savage, um, whose mm -hmm. garments were on show, actually. So the this kind of invitation was part of an exhibition that was taking place at Bemis called Opulence, which was about different displays of opulence um, and kind of queerness um, and surfaces and all that. And Felicia had a lot of her garments on show. So her, she's a drag queen and she's got all her, you know, her jewelry, her earrings, her gowns all on show. And she's sort of like the nightlife girl in Omaha. So it was important for me to do this lecture and not just parachute in like I'm like I know what's going on, but to actually interact with someone else who's there in the scene who knows what's going on. And so the lectures is kind of to and fro between my talking and personal story and kind of a little bit of mixing and then interacting and bringing in, for example, Felicia Savage and, and her and her take as well. Um, I just did it here in San Francisco last night and I brought in two folks who are uh, in the local scene here. One is called Fox and he does a lot of the producing of sort of queer techno events in the Bay Area and has done for the last few years. And um, this other cat who's a professor at UC Santa Cruz called Xavier Liverman, whose work is on like black music and queerness and stuff. So, and it was a little bit different last night because it was one of these free Thursday things at SF MoMA where I couldn't really do a lecture per se because I didn't know what the flow would be in terms of people coming and leaving because it's a free Thursday thing. So um, I didn't actually talk at all. Um, and so I had a lot of the lecture on slides that people could read. And then we just had a talk back at the end with Xavier and Fox to get their perspective um, on sort of the local scene and stuff. I am going to talk more about your nightlife and residence at the kitchen in a bit. Um, but I do think it's interesting that if you go on your website, uh, performances and lectures are in the same area. Uh, I think your DJ sets and these performance lectures are listed in the same sort of section. How did you arrive at this format as an ideal one for your work and your intentions? Because it feels like it crosses over with your DJing practice and your academic research and also you as a performer. 
Yeah, that's a really it's a really good question. Um, it's one that I've thought about a lot over the years. You know, um, my background and training as like a researcher scholar is in um, this field called performance studies, which is coming out of theater and anthropology in a way. Um, and it's about often it's about finding ways to connect theory and practice. You know, so that. Um, for me, it's not enough to just do the performance, right? So the DJ set or whatever it is, but to actually bring research or theory to the table. And I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's one of those things that you just realize as you're doing it. You know, if I had done years of doing talks at conferences and always with a little bit of a performative twist, I'll never forget my very first uh performance extra, if you want to call it that, was about Tina Turner. I had, I'd, I'd written this essay on Tina Turner um, and uh, her sort of stage presence. And um, I remember asking my advisor, my dissertation advisor, if I could go to this conference and like put a wig on and dance in front of the table as to like start my talk. And he was like, absolutely, why not? <laughs> um, so I think that was like the first moment where I realized that you could bring performance together with you know, your scholarship as a way to um, make the knowledge embodied, you know, and I think that that's something that I've been interested in and why I try to fuse together the DJing and the lecture. It's like, how do you bring the knowledge? How do you dance with the knowledge? How do you embody it? How do you, you know, get people sweating and thinking and processing and thinking about their own connection to this stuff, not just my connection, but their own connections to it. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's one of those happy accidents, you know, and there is a model of, of folks who do, you know, um, you know, performative lectures, right? I'm thinking about DJ Spooky, for example, who was an early template for me when I was in grad school. I was like, wow, he's DJing and like doing lectures. That was definitely a template for me um, years and years and years ago. Um, there are also folks like DJ Lene Denise who also do like lectures and kind of in this kind of way. And I think that for me, I'm like, okay, let's, how do you get, how do you bring the party into that? How do you get people dancing? How do you bring in the ideas and the sweat and the music and the oral history and the theory all in one and sort of make it this embodied package that feels full? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and when you're doing these, it, it splits the difference and connects your interest in club culture with your academic research. Mm -hmm. What are the responses like from these separate groups? What what was the conference reaction when you put on that Tina Turner wig for the first time? And uh, how do how do you know clubbers re react when they find themselves at these performances in a museum or more institutional context? Because there is a connection, a deep connection to club culture, at least that I perceive it. But it's happening in a different space with a different kind of sound system with a different kind of crowd too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I always also imagine a DJ, DJ set as like a thesis, right? Like I'm, I'm a scholar, I'm an academic, I write essays and papers and books and things of that sort. And you always have to have an argument like the so what? Why are, why are we reading this? Why are we engaging with this? And I think the same thing about DJ sets. It's like, so what? Why am I here? You know, why should I why should I stay here? Right. It's like come to the room, but also I could go to the other room. Right. So how do you approach the DJ set as a thesis or as an argument, you know, and kind of try to convey that? So I think that's kind of how I'm thinking about like the DJ practice side and how again to sort of sort of show how for me they're not really different practices I just fuse them together the teaching and the DJing and the lecturing like they're it's just about fusing them together you know um and I think that for me I am most excited to be able to be environment in environments 
since my work, this work is about club culture, to be in the thing, right? So to me, it's even more important when promoters and people involved in their local scenes and DJs and upcoming DJs and nightlife scholars or up and coming nightlife scholars are there in the audience and they see what's possible and what you can do with knowledge. You know, that it doesn't have to be this thing that's gatekept behind like a JSTOR portal, you know, or like some sort of institutional access thing, you know, that you can bring the knowledge, bring the ideas, bring the fun out, you know, to, to, to folks where they are, you know. Um, and I think there's something about doing these things within museum spaces that's interesting, too, because, um, you know, there's so much queer art and performance that is already about the club, right? There's so much art and performance. Felix Gonzalez Torres comes to mind or Tiona Nakia McClodin comes to mind, right? These these folks and artists who are already making work about the significance of the club for queer folks, for black queer folks, right? Um, and so for me, it's just about another way of bringing people in who maybe maybe can't come to the party, like the actual party, you know, at basement or, 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 or the warehouse because for whatever reason, you know? And so it's about how do you make the experience accessible to people, you know? I think in general, it's kind of an artificial boundary that people on either side impose. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot more possibilities for this intersection than either side likes to presume, at least in my experience. I'm, I'm thinking yeah. of uh, a talk at the PopCon, which was happening a couple of weeks ago that you were on the programming committee on with writing about raving, which is a reading series. And they were talking about their introduction of lights and fog machines to their reading series. It's happening on the dance floor. Yes, it's writing about raving, but it still has the trappings of yeah. a club night in that experience, which I really liked hearing about. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, that's, that's, it's really, it's about theater. I mean, I think for me, this is really all theater, right? It's about, you know, what writing on raving does and doing it either at a, whether it's at nowadays or not, and bringing in these other elements, bringing in sound, you're creating a production for people, right? And what is nightlife if not a production? And I always think about, you know, the nightlife experience, whether it's a, at a club or at a rave, like there's a lot of production that goes into it. You know, you gotta, you gotta get the lights right you got to get the fog you got to everything is like you're putting on a show you're putting on a theater piece and so i think that's the other angle that i think is really interesting here you know people go to see a production a play on broadway and so going to the club or going to one of these lectures at a museum is not unlike going to the theater i would say yeah definitely so when did you you know you you mentioned that you grew up in ferguson like what what was your upbringing like in ferguson and when did dance music and club culture enter your life. I'm really curious to know more about how Ferguson has influenced your practice today as a DJ and an artist scholar. Yeah, it's, 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 um, I grew up in a musical household. I was actually, so my, um, my uncle was a guitarist. Um, my stepfather was a guitarist and a drummer. You know, I kind of grew up around music in a lot of ways, and I myself was a like classical violin nerd, believe it or not. So I was, you know, um, when I got to third grade, we had to choose an instrument, and my one was violin, and I just really took. Can you still play? Uh, probably not. Probably very badly. Um, <laughs> but it no no violins <laughs> coming into your performance lecture. I mean, maybe soon. folks have been like, you know, you should bring it in. You should do like a DJ set hybrid you know, um, lecture performance recital moment. I'm like, maybe she's coming. I don't know. You know, we'll see. But <laughs> um, no, but it's like, 
music is was such a it was really an escape for me to be honest because i was this like closeted kid who through music i was able to kind of escapes to somewhere else. I got lost in the romance, you know, of Tchaikovsky and Bach and like all these things. I was very, very serious about violin and majored in violin performance for a minute and then got out of that and majored in French. Um, but it's just to say that, you know, while, well, to say that how important music was to me, you know, and as I was coming into my queerness, um, you know, St. Louis is really segregated, and I don't mean that just racially. I mean, like, it's hard to get anywhere if you don't have a car, you know? Um, it's really, really spread out. And so there were gay clubs and, and bars in St. Louis, but I, how would I get to them as, like, a 16 or 18-year-old kid without a car? We didn't have Uber back then, I'm sorry to say, you know? <laughs> if we had Uber, I probably would be like, yeah. I'm going to get an Uber, you know, go to the club. But I, we didn't have that, and I didn't have any money, and a taxi was, like, $100 or something crazy, you know, to get there and back, right? So... But I would say my my first nightlife experiences were this. There was this coffee shop in a neighborhood called the Central West Inn, which is near WashU, Washington University. Uh, and the coffee shop was called I can't remember, uh, Coffee Cartel. And it was like this gay coffee shop that was open 24 hours. And they had like ice cream and sandwiches and different stuff. And like folks would go there you know, um, before the club, after the club. And because I couldn't go to the club, that kind of like was the club for me, <laughs> you know, going to going to. I have to imagine they didn't serve alcohol either. It was just, you know, I don't even coffee shop. I don't... It, it wasn't a place where people would party. It was bef the before and after. it was the before it was the before and it was the afters. You know what I'm saying? Because clearly people people would clearly come after having been at the club. But, you know, so, so I would get that whiff. And um, to be honest, I didn't really do a lot of clubbing in St. Louis. I remember going to, um, so East St. Louis, Illinois is, was this sort of like red light district, which is where the strip clubs are, you know, and like the, the club. Yeah. So it was like the vice district. I remember going there once and I don't really remember that much about it. Um, but I would say that my, my, I, I guess I was always interested in dance music because when I, I, with my allowance, I would always go, we had this record store called Streetside Records, and I would go and spend my allowance, and actually I would buy fabric CDs at the time, and I didn't know what they were, they were just in these cool tins, and I liked that, you know, um, I was like, oh, that's cool, I want to buy, and I, so I would just buy all of them all the time, you know, and that was really my kind of foray into, I would say, dance music, and again, for me, like, coming at dance music from this, like, classical perspective, you know, having been in that space, like, I was, I loved you know, Bach. And then there was something also equally meditative about getting lost in kind of the repetitiveness, you know, too, of um, a lot of the dance music that I was listening to at the time, right? So I would say that for me, it, I really didn't discover club culture, like, and dancing until I got to college um, in Ann Arbor and really then started, like, really turning up and really understanding what it was to, because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't really get to the club. And in Ann Arbor, I could walk to the club, right? So even if you didn't have access to clubbing that you could attend personally growing up, were you already exposed to any instances of black queer clubbing communities in the media? Was that reaching you um, through TV or film or anything like that? I'm curious about how that awareness developed in tandem with the actual ability to attend in person. Because I think for many people, they, they hear about these things filtered through the media first. And then it's sort of, um, it, it's not always accurate, we know. But yeah. it becomes a reference that people can think of, oh, that's something that exists 
somewhere in my future, somewhere else. That's so interesting because I, w- I think that like, you know, my earliest template, I would say, you know, again, like I was in this religious household and closeted. So I was, I was wary of consuming too much, being too overtly queer with what I'm consuming. Right. Um, but I think that it was through magazines, you know, and descriptions of clubs and spaces um, or in these magazines or, or the advertisements that would be in them for clubs. Um, the, the little alt weeklies that were that were that were around, you know, where you could like see personal ads in an era before Grindr, you know, um, or, or whatever. Right. Or like, um, uh, yeah, just the advertisements for the club that would be in these in these in these um, in these sort of alt weeklies, you know, or these like little small queer gay public, really gay publications. Right. Um, so I guess you could say that I was trying to consume queerness covertly. Um, I, um, Prince was very important to me for sure. Um, as somebody who I could consume, who I could engage with, um, and not be outed, you know, to me, it was fascinating that like everybody loved Prince and he was so queer, but yet, also, un- people didn't question his heterosexuality, or at least not in my family. So I could like, oh, you know, be like, oh, I love Prince. When it was really, I was trying to like be like Prince, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think it was, I think my access to the, to the my entryway to the club was really knowing about it and being excited about what it offered, what it, what it could be, you know, um, or what could be there. And also just being limited by the fact that I couldn't get to these spaces. I was curious. I knew that there were other gay people there and I wanted to be around other gay people, you know? Um, and so I think it was really more kind of in the imagination at the time. And it, it wasn't until I kind of escaped and got out of the house that I really, I think started to be able to act on those things. And one of the things that was really, um, I think important in this narrative is that, my first few years of college were in this place um, at this place, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, which is like a super small town. And we would literally commute to. Um, so I'm like probably 18 or 19 at this time. We would like commute to gay bars. Um, so Oxford is like an hour from Cincinnati. Um, and we would go sometimes to Dayton or even Columbus, which was known to be like a kind of the gay capital of Ohio or whatever. We would like the phrase I use is commute to queerness, right? We would commute to this club called Mask, um, you know, and it's I say commute to queerness because, you know, Oxford, Ohio is this like isolated town that you can only get to by those you know those two lane roads you know like it's one direction and it's like farmland all around yeah. you know it's one of those kind of moments and um crops on literally side. that part <laughs> <laughs> um so we would literally you know we would drive we'd have to have one sober person right who wouldn't drink and then we would all pile into this car drive for an hour to go to the club to be there for like an hour maybe or an hour and a half to drive back another hour right so when I say community to queerness, that's really what I mean um, to be able to try to access, you know, those spaces. And then when I transferred out of Oxford to Ann Arbor to University of Michigan, um, that the club, the gay club, was right was right there. So I could easily just walk there, you know, on a Friday night, Saturday night. The commute to queerness got a lot shorter. <laughs> it really did. You know, it was right outside of my dorm room. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you mentioned the advertisements 
in these magazines because I believe that I've read in the past that at one point you were studying the history of luxury. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I've seen you do a presentation as well about um, the different designs on shopping bags. Oh, wow. Different luxury <laughs> retailers. It was from a while ago. Um, but I was I was just curious about what your I was curious how your research focus was coalescing with this period of self-discovery. What were you actually studying when you were at Ann Arbor? Um, and how did that continue as you moved on from Ann Arbor to Yale and everywhere else where you have um, these very impressive scholarly credentials? You know, I think that the thing that really undergirds my research and my kind of like uh, intellectual interest or whatever is just like the vernacular, the everyday, right? Like the kind of sense of the everydayness of what people do to find joy, to express themselves, you know, to um, to to connect, to make a community, um, to refuse. And so, actually, um, I bet you don't know this. My my undergraduate work at University of Michigan was my honors thesis was actually about gay porn. L O L O L. Surprise. Um, yeah, it was. I was looking. I, so I was majoring in French, and I um, my my very first my very very first research project was I was working with this professor, French professor called David Caron, and um, he was working on a map of queer Paris. So it was like basically to to sort of talk. He was French, and the point was to sort of talk about how queerness in France is not located in a particular neighborhood or like one area, but that it's all over, right? So I kind of like researched the the different kinds of queer spaces that there were from like clubs and bathhouses to movie theaters and bookshops and restaurants and community centers and made this like, you know, map and put push pins on it with color coded, like the clubs are pink and like, you know, the health spaces are orange or whatever. And that was my very first like, research project as a, you know, as a, as a wee young twink at Michigan. Um, and so, um, that's, I would say an early, early kind of snapshot or even window into how my nightlife kind of interest started was with this map that I made as like a sophomore or whatever at university of Michigan for this professor, you know? And so then that interest kind of spiraled on and on and on. And I discovered, um, you know, um, that there was a lot of interplay between the kind of colonial, French colonial desire for the other, you know, the racialized other, the Arab, basically. Um, and seeing how that was maybe reflected in contemporary gay pornography. So there was this um, porn site, which I think is so active, called Cité Beur. And um, it's like a basically like an era, like a site for like kind of um, like sort of very, very racialized Arab like folks, um, young. Like it's called Rakai um, in French, which is like, I don't know how to say this in English, like like kind of ghetto maybe or like kind of like hood, you know, hood porn, I guess you could say mm -hmm. in very strong air quotes. Um, but I was really interested. In you can't see Madison <laughs> right now, but... Very strong air quotes are being uh, presented as he, as he yes. mentions this. So. so I was just basically like trying to make connection between like how folks were presented in this like genre of pornography and then how the sort of, um, you know, 
French Arabs were described and talked about in, you know, the early 20th century, right? And so that's kind of what I was trying to do. And it was, it's a project that got me into all these French PhD programs. Um, I was excited about it, you know, um, and then I got to Yale. I was in the French department there and um, I transitioned out of that into American studies uh, department once I kind of realized that the work that I wanted to do was not quite so literary, you know, like French uh, studies can be, or at least at the time was quite literary. Maybe things have changed now, but, you know, I was interested in, you know, obviously film and video and music and other kinds of things. Um, I listened to a lot of French hip hop at the time to kind of like try to work on my French uh, skills. Um, switched out of that program when I got to Yale, um, got to American Studies, and I worked with this professor, Joseph Roach, who had at the time written a book, it's called It, and it was about basically the it factor, but looking at, you know, the, how we say people have that it factor, like on stage, uh, but looking at it in 18th century, sort of 18th century British British theater, and it's a super cool book, he's a super cool, super cool guy, and that's just a long diatribe to say how I got to luxury, you know, um, by thinking about like the vernacular, the everyday, these things that are not really taken seriously, the kind of ambience around everyday life, if you will, you know, um, and yeah. Um, I think there's, there's probably, I would presume a pretty strong connection to that treatment of luxury as it relates to the history of nightlife as well. Um, luxury is both like an aspirational thing for people who are going out or something that people want to exist in opposition to when it comes to how they're presenting certain nights. Did did they overlap at all in your mind or was it very separated? You know, it's, yeah, I I think at this time in my mind, it was still a little, it was still separated. Um, I, but I, but they came together, right? I mean, I have to say that at the same time that I was, Researching this luxury, um, my, my initial dissertation title was going to be The Performance of Luxury. That was initially the title of the dissertation. Um, and because I was interested in these kind of displays of, of wealth or, the, you know, over-the-topness or whatever. And I think an important part of this narrative is that while I was up in New Haven, I was, like, also always in New York. Um, I was taking the train down from New Haven like all the time such that my life was like, okay, girl, am I getting the last train back or the first train? <laughs> and then what am I going to do in the interim, you know, because <laughs> it was very that or, you know, and I, you know, breakfast at Odessa before the train, like that was very much my kind of um, coming of age, you know, and while I was in grad school, but also while I was in grad school living in living in New Haven and then living in New York later, um, I was interning at Interview Magazine. I was interning at Deitch Projects. I was interning at Fashion Magazines while also researching luxury and going to the club. And for me, this is an important thing because I realized, oh, this is actually what you're doing. This is what it is, right? This, they're not separate worlds, you know, like you being like a scholar or whatever or, or in grad school in New Haven, it's not different than what you're doing here at like Misshapes, you know, at Don Hills, you know, yeah. whatever. And so I just, okay, and it's like one of those light bulb moments where I just kind of fuse it all together. And um, I would say that certainly there were performances of luxury at places like Studio 54, you know, which was all about, you know, kind of that kind of glamour um, moment, which I... Conspicuous consumption. Conspicuous consumption, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, 
I arrived at fabulousness because I th- um, because I think that luxury. I found that luxury was a little bit was quite limiting actually, for what I was trying to sort of talk about, you know. And so I, that's why I, that's how I arrived at fabulousness because fabulousness is kind of like an encompassing thing, and it can be, you know, um, costume jewelry or it can be real or or what. But the point is that it sparkles, that it shines, that it gives off that glimmering effect, you know. And I think I got more interested in. I think probably also inspired by what, seeing what was in the club, right? And less in the luxury piece, but more inspired by club kids, more inspired by folks turning looks to go to the boom, boom room, you know, um, or whatever. And like seeing that maybe they weren't wearing the latest fashion, but they made a look and they look fab, you know? And so that kind of like was very inspiring for the project. And so you're seeing how I kind of started at luxury maybe, but then kind of as I spent more time in the club and in New York and like in this, in these worlds kind of brought it down, right? back to sort of the everyday and to kind of, um, you know, how people who maybe don't have resources or, or, or access to luxury turn looks and maybe that, maybe those are the best looks. Probably those are the best looks. (laughs) Usually those are the best looks. Um, The creativity comes from limitations. Yeah, absolutely. uh, And, and because you brought it up, I think it's worth, mentioning specifically that you did publish a book on fabulousness that was fabulous the rise of the beautiful eccentric it came out in 2018 and it was described as an exploration of what it means to be fabulous and why eccentric style and fashion and creativity become political in their own way um can you tell us a little bit more about um how you were approaching fabulousness as both a style and a performance um, and and what what shape this research took for you as you were in, interrogating and researching fabulousness as as a concept yeah i mean i th- I think that the thing that was very kind of dynamic for my thinking about fabulousness is actually like the Mardi Gras Indians and the Mardi Gras Indian suits. So when you think about Mm. um, the labor that goes into making, you know, one of these suits for this parade, right? Like thousands of hours go into sewing together these sequins, sewing together this thing that is so big and takes up so much space, right? Like physically, literally, it's taking up so much space, you know, or, uh, or you know, um, or, and even visual space, like just, it's a lot to see. And so that was, I think the thing that helped me to think about what fabulousness does as a practice, that even if your look is not taking up, you know, stretching out five feet in front, all around you, even if it's on the body, you're still seizing space, you know, as you move through the world, as you get on the bus, as you go to the club, as you go to the grocery store, you know, you're still seizing space and attention. And I think that I found that so interesting about fabulousness because it's so much easier to blend in, right? It's so much easier to kind of disappear. Um, The philosopher, queer philosopher, Michel Foucault uses this phrase, you know, um, do not appear if you do not want to disappear. And I find that really interesting for thinking about fabulousness because at the same time that fabulousness is really visible, it also makes you, obviously visibility is a trap, right? It makes you a target. It makes you, you're under surveillance. I can see you, I can target you, I can traffic you, right? Um, and I got really interested in why people decide 
know all of that, right? You know that it's going to get you in trouble, but that people, or can get you in trouble, but that people do it anyway. And that's what I found really fascinating about fabulousness as fabulousness as a practice. And importantly, not just at the club, right? Because of course I was going to, you know, misshapes and turning looks and going to, you know, on top with Suzanne Barch and turning looks and all these things, right? But it was not about just the club, right? It was, I was interested in people who were doing that at the club, but also folks who like weren't, like who I don't, I actually don't know what they look like because they're always in a look, you know, like it's those people who like mm. make it a practice that that I got really interested in with with fabulousness. And so I did a lot of interviews chatting with people about, you know, how they came to fabulousness, what it means for them. And, you know, everybody has this, who, who, I, who I spoke to has this turning point where they kind of realized like the world is not made for them. You, you know, there's so many systems and structures that are in place to uh harm you to dehumanize you to question your rights really your ability to exist um and so everybody's like you know what i'm just gonna give up and just start doing me basically <laughs> and just start doing what i want to do you know and it sounds very flippant but actually it's that's a lot more complicated to do than it seems right it, like the pressure to blend it the pressure to blend in is very very strong nobody wants to be singled out right in that way um so the choice to stand out is really a difficult one and one that's a constant negotiation because maybe today you don't have the energy for the look maybe you just want to get home safely you don't want you can't be bothered right so it's this kind of constant thing that's always modulated and kind of you know negotiated depending on where you are uh you know which you is on the apps you know, if you're on Grinder, is your is your fabulous you on Grinder, or are you gonna present your more safe you that will get you some D? You know, like, um, <laughs> right? Like, it's yeah. like all of those kind of <laughs> negotiations that take place all the time, and so that's what I found really super fascinating about fabulousness as a sort of, you know, poetic practice. And and I think that club, even if your research was talking about fabulousness from a more general perspective, club culture historically mm -hmm. owes so much to the people who have embraced fabulousness as, uh, you know, a risky personal expression yes. that translates into a totally different um, musical and social environment in a space on a dance floor. Um, I, I was curious to hear, you, to hear you talk a little bit more about whether there were uh, people or labels or parties or tracks that you felt encapsulate this fabulousness from a musical perspective. Um, mm -hmm. and, and whether you still see that as, you know, a presence in contemporary club culture as well, or if it feels like something that you wish there was a lot more of. Yeah. I mean, obviously the go-to for this is Mother Sylvester. You know, we got to give it up to Mother mm -hmm. Sylvester for that there. And the thing is, I didn't know about Sylvester until I got to college. It was, you know, I wish I had known about them when I was like 10 or, you know, 15, cause you know, cause I, I just didn't know. Right. Um, but that I wish I wish people played uh, "Babies in the Womb" Sylvester in, in addition to Mozart. You know, that would be great. <laughs> like start start even earlier than ten years old. Yes, I love that. Um, but yeah, no. But so I definitely Sylvester, who was just giving you, who was just giving it to you, just giving it to you vocally in the performance, in the looks, in the fashion, right, in the ambiance, in the unapologetically being themselves. So uh, that is very much a, a, a clear example to me of somebody who, who embraces in music that sort of fabulous ethos. Um, 
there's a track that I've been playing lately that um a friend a friend sent to me and I'm like I'm like girl you're probably sick of me because I play this in every set you come <laughs> you come hear me but it's I can't remember who it's by but it's called I Look Good and it's um it's from it's like a Star sixty nine track from Peter Ro- um Peter Rohoffer and it's just it's so fab and it's just like I look good boo 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 you know and it's just one of those ones with the you know it's just it's that moment um and I think that actually you can when you there are so many tracks. There was a, there was a, there was an there was an angle in my book where I was going to talk about all the tracks that talked about looking good and feeling fabulous, you know, like there's so much dance music that's about exactly this from like, you know, Donna Summer and um, Cheryl Lee Ralph in the evening, you know, um, or or even the ones flawless was which was another one of my favorite tracks actually. Um, I remember there was a time um, so I think Miss Shapes had just ended. This would have been maybe I don't know two thousand nine or so maybe, uh, or ten. I was living in um in William in uh, Greenpoint, and uh, there was this place I can't remember what it was called. Oh, Sugarland. Yes, there was this club Sugarland that had just opened in in Williamsburg, down the street from where I used to live, and this group, the Ones, was performing, and I was obsessed with them at the time. The Ones is like New York New York trio, dance music icons, and the track is called Flawless, absolutely flawless. You know, do you know it? Yeah, flawless. Yes. Absolutely flawless. Yeah, of course I know it. So that's another one that's like kind of to that point of like the musical sort of fabulousness, you know, but it, it does exist in so much dance music, actually, this concept of like. I think of Aaron Carl, mm-hmm. too, as someone who, you know, the definition of fabulousness in a in a culture that, you know, he was ahead of his time, mm-hmm. really, um, with that sort of expression. But with when you are DJing and, you know, you, you have such when you're DJing, how do you feel like you're able to flex this fabulousness when you're playing techno and things like that? I, people say a lot of things about techno. Fabulousness is not often something that people associate with it. So I'm curious what sort of argument you are making for fabulousness when you are playing and DJing at a techno club like Basement in New York. Um, or more generally, you know, it's. I am so glad you asked this because um, a few years ago, I used to live in London um, for for five years, and um, when I was there, I was part. Of, I um, was part of this crew called Opulence, and we started a techno party at this place that no longer exists called uh, Five Miles up in Tottenham. Up in Tottenham, and the whole point of the party was literally this point to fuse together techno and fabulousness. That sense of like coming up in a look and actually our um the tagline for the party was come dressed um and um we one of the the photographer so we were like a little crew of you know you know um small crew folks who were all fashion girlies you know all of us (laughs) um but also nightlife people too and the photographer jelly louise um she did all of the photography and we sort of talked about how we wanted the party to convey a fashion ethos so to kind of go against you know so, so many flyers anyway at the, at the time um um in london at the time for techno parties were you know black or gray you know with very like kind of industrial kind of undertones and we wanted it our flyers to look like fashion ads um and to be more like very fashion like edgy fashion interesting you know like um very you know um yeah very edgy fashion. I, I get what you're saying. It's it's a pretty distinct aesthetic. Than yeah. What most techno flyers. A very like. distinct aesthetic. 
and Jelly shot all of the images, and we, you know, we would sometimes, you know, um, you know, um, 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 the, the very first one I remember we did at a, at an off license uh, in Dalston. I can't remember what it's called, but it's right off of the market. And we just pulled up and we're like, hey, can we just do like a little hour long photo shoot in here? And he was like, yeah, fine, do it. You know, so we just did this photo shoot in this grocery store, in this like um, bodega, like grocery store, you know, to kind of, but with like high fashion, you know. Um, and one of the comments that we got from somebody who, who was like, they were like, we weren't sure if Opulence was, if it was a party, if it was a fashion label, it was what, and we, it was like, that's exactly like, that was kind of the point. And I love mission, mission accomplished. accomplished. And I love seeing people come up, even if they didn't have, you know, a lot of clothes or whatever it is, they would like put on a little eye, you know, or they would put like they would like bejewel their face or whatever you could do, whatever, whatever you had access to. And that was the point, really. And I would say that that really comes, I would say, come from my kind of experience, my time being in New York. Right. And going to all of these parties, you know, where folks are turning looks you know, and kind of wanting to have more of that in these techno spaces. Um, and so that was like a place where we tried to, well, I'm always in a look anyway when I go out. So that's just my own, my own zhuzh. Um, but <laughs> um, so with Opulence, we tried to kind of create that space. And so even when I, now when I'm DJing these, these parties, I think it's important for me to like show up in my in my in my full self in in a look you know obviously i gotta be able to move around you know but and i've learned not to do it in heels because sometimes that gets very painful um after three or four <laughs> hours but <laughs> but you're still leading by example leading, when it comes yes, to presenting yes bringing i mean you know and so many clubs nowadays anyway don't have disco balls right like why not you be the disco ball if if there's not going to be one you know like you be the disco ball do a little shimmy you know while you while you give them the beats you know <laughs> I love that. And so were you, was it already, were you already DJing in New York or did that no. begin in London? Where, where, were, where were your influences coming from as you actually started to DJ in nightclubs and take all of these life experiences and influences and motivations into practice? Bring all that theory and practice yes, and combine Yes, literally. Them. I mean, I, I would say my whole thing has been theory and practice. It's really, that's really what it has been, right? It has been sort of realizing that actually you can do everything, right? You can bring them all together. To your point earlier, right? It's not about having these separate boundaries or this, uh, this is my one brain and this is my other brain. Do all of it. Bring it all together. It's more fun. It's, maybe it's more messy. It's more interesting, right? Um, and I think, so when I was in New York at the time, I was not DJing. Um, I was interested in it, but to be honest, I didn't have, I was a grad student. I didn't have the resources to like get anything or whatever. So um, I, I remember, so this is kind of embarrassing, but I'm just gonna tell you anyway. Um, there was a story, so basically I put an ad on Craigslist at, cause I wanted to learn to DJ. I was like, I wanna learn how to DJ. It was like with the headline. Um, and this guy had a studio in Bushwick um, and he gave me three, like we had three lessons and um, he was like, okay. And he, he charged me like $20 a lesson, which was like super affordable at the time for me, you know. Had these three lessons. And he was like, okay, now you have to, now you're on your own, go. And I was like, that can't be it. Like what, there's gotta be more. Like I, he was like, you gotta get equipment and just practice now. So I was like, okay, but I didn't have the resources for that. And I don't know that there were like the smaller controllers that there are now at that time. I don't remember, but. Are we talking like mid 2010s? Yeah. Earlier? Yeah, like around okay. like nine, ten or so. Okay. Um, so I kind of put a pin in it a bit. And then I got this fellowship to study in London. And it's kind of a kiki because the, the fellowship was um, 
it was on Black Diasporic Dance Cultures. Um, and I got to tell you, so the ad, the job ad for this postdoc, it was really meant to be, I have to tell you. The, the ad said, we're looking for somebody who, you know, is studying nightlife or who's studying, you know, the club and warning might spend, you know, long hours at salsa clubs, you know, or, or might, you know, I was like, oh, this is perfect, you know. So I wrote them, I applied, and I said, I'm going to learn to DJ, I'm going to need this equipment, da 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 And I got the fellowship, and it's through those resources that I was able to actually start, you know, um, getting equipment and practicing and kind of really doing that whole thing. So that's kind of, I, I, it's, I had been interested in DJing for a while, but I really didn't get into it for real until I moved to London, and then it was sort of part of the London scene, um, and then kind of took it from there. So there's really no distance between the academia and the research no. and DJing if that <laughs> if that research is what got you the gear for the first time. Yeah, it was really a blessing. That's great. It really was. Like to have that four years, you know, to just kind of play, really. How did you find your sound as a DJ developing um, in relation yeah. to this research, in relation to your time in London and your return eventually to this to the States where you live now? Um I was I was one of those easy jet girlies who was going to Berlin um, all the time. So I yeah was because I was living in London. I was going to Amsterdam. I was going to Berlin. I was going to these spaces. I was going to Spain and like basically being a techno tourist, as Luis Manuel Garcia, Miss Peretta talks about it. Right, traveling to like these different places to follow my favorite DJs. And I think that that's kind of where I learned. Um, I had like maybe three or four DJs that I would just like follow wherever they were and I would just go and hear them. Who were they? Uh, I was interested. I loved Answer Code Request was one of my favorite ones because mm. um, he was, at the time, he was the one of the ones that I've heard who was doing techno but bringing in other sounds, like making a little bit, a little kind of, a little, little bit of sauce on it. I don't know how else to describe it. But I always liked, I always liked his kind of um, approach and style. Um, you know, and I was also just following, yeah, going to these clubs like uh, like Trau in Amsterdam um, before it closed, um, you know, these other spaces. Mm. And I think that like I just I had not heard music. I had not heard techno. I, I loved the impact, right? The, the, the sense of the drama, I guess you could say of it. I loved that so much. And I think that my sound now has really been inspired by by that i mean i like harder sounds but with a little bit of little bit of zhuzh in them too you know um you know and so i find myself trying to bring these harder sounds but also make them a little cunty if that makes sense <laughs> you know yeah. um so i think that's yeah that's how i would just that's how i would describe it at the time were you seeing much representation of black queer aesthetics in techno, if at all? Were you attempting to address that imbalance with your own DJing or, or the way you were approaching it? Because I think it's a very different conversation even from 2023 to 2020 to 2017. And you know, it's, things have changed quite a bit when it comes to these um, you know, blackness and queerness really being asserted as at the core of raving and it, it not just being a white European thing. I think people like you and festivals like Dweller mm -hmm. and so many other places have just been in a process of asserting this 
for for several years now. But I was curious if you already had a sense of it um, when you were starting to DJ, if you were trying to actively address that imbalance early on. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I th- it's definitely something that was noticeable, right? I, I think um, I look back on my RA sort of like um, ticket thing to see like where did I where was I going the most and. The club that I went to the most in London was Village Underground because they were the ones doing all the they had all the people, you know, and I was like, how many of those people who they booked at Village Underground were ever women or or black people or just not white men? And it was like not that many, honestly. Um, and I think that that is partially what we were trying to kind of do when we when we started Opulence, you know, around the same time that a lot of other party crews internationally were also trying to or working to spotlight, you know, um, different voices in dance music, you know. Um, um, I think that a DJ who always turned me out um, in the garden of Berghain and everywhere else is Honey Dijon. I mean, like, you know, mm. turning it out. Like, I... I have such memories of just being in the garden, Honey Dijon just turning it, turning it, <laughs> you know? Um, so those are things that really, the sort of experiences and sonic gestures that stick with you and I would, you know, that you want to try to convey in your own set, in your own way. You know, how can you make people feel like you're turning it for them? You know, I don't know, right? And so um, just kind of figuring out, and I guess also too what I mean about the DJ said as a thesis, you know, like an argument, why do you even stay listening? You know, what is the, what do, what's the, so what, you know? Um, so I would say that, yeah, that there, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of DJs um, circulating at the time. I was in London from like f- f- uh, 14 to 18 and there weren't, 2014 to 18 and there weren't, yeah, it was not really, a big spot, not in the techno scene. I mean, there were definitely party crews like BBZ and like Pussy Palace and others that were like decidedly black femme spaces, but in the techno space, it hadn't kind of gotten there yet. Um, and I remember seeing um, seeing Shindo, the fact that she existed. I was like, whoa, a black femme, like technology, I'm going to that, you know? So I remember following her around. That was one DJ that I follow around. Every time she was at Berkheim, I'm at that set, you know? Or or like, um, you know, Steve Rockmed was someone else I was very interested in who I followed, you know, this, this Dutch DJ Rod as well. So I followed every, anytime anybody black was at Berkheim, I was I was at that set because I wanted to to, mm-hmm. to be there and to be, be in that room and just sort of observe that you know and so um and you know um so yeah what does it mean for you now to see festivals like dweller taking over clubs like Berghain? i know you've played at dweller in the past i i believe you know what do you what do you perceive as the impact and importance of these kinds of events knowing what you know having the experiences that you've had of that not always having been as accessible well, I think the the important thing to note is that Dweller should not be an outlier. It's that Dweller should absolutely be the norm, right? D- dweller is the norm, absolutely. right? And so, like, that should not be an outlier booking. That should be an all-the-time top-rate booking all the time, right? Both at Dweller, but also any of those artists, right? Any of those people anywhere all the time. Um, and so I think that it's just about reframing the question around who we're centering and, and why and how we're who we're valuing, you know? Um, to me, that's really the important thing to, to, to think through here. It's, 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 it's about, um, you know, um, yeah. How do we, how do you 
create a dance music culture where having an all black lineup isn't like a spectacle where it's like absolutely yeah. the normal thing because that's those are the girls you know and you have also asserted the importance of that through your work on the special edition of Eflux that came out late 2022. I think mm -hmm. the actual title of that was Black Rave, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that or describe it for people who won't have read it? Um, you know, what was the intentions behind that project as it relates to this line of questioning that we're discussing? Who are some of the people involved? And what was it like for you to see that take shape in the way it did. I know you contributed a mix and an essay. Um, Lady Blacktronica as her alias uh, feminist did another great mix. There was, um, you know, multiple other, I think Jasmine Infinity and Bebe wrote stuff, but I'll let you talk about it rather than me me going through it all. Tell me about that project and, and why it was so important for you to do that. I think that that project really was a culmination in, in some ways, or even in, maybe even an escalation of a lot of the concerns that you that that I that are there, you know, from the opulence project, you know, through um, you know all these things, and I think it is. We wanted so the issue the issue was co-edited with um, Mackenzie Wark, whose new book on raving just came out, and um, I think that we wanted to try to tell a new story about techno or another story about techno, one that centered black femmes in the story. Um, I think that we are used to a narrative of techno uh, or, or a particular narrative of techno. I think we, um, you know, um, you know, sort of like Detroit origins and like the same folks who've been involved. And so we wanted to kind of posit the question, well, what happens to that narrative when we center black femmes and that black femmes and black trans people and queer people in this space? You know, what happens when we make techno not only black again, but black and queer again? Um, and so we, you know, um, had mixes uh, from feminists who I've loved for a long time, um, who, you know, made a mix and wrote an essay about their experiences. We had um, a piece from Tigerpaw talk about their experiences in music and techno and kind of their perspective. And I think it's really important also to sort of underline that um, we wanted to, uh, as a way to kind of further connect theory and practice, you know, have DJs write essays rather than only make mixes, right? Um, and as a way to sort of like tell another side of, show another side of themselves. So, you know, um, you know, um, Tiger Paul writes an essay, Jasmine Infinity writes an essay, Marinex writes an essay but makes a mix, Feminist makes a mix, right? Um, we also had Bebe who talked about uh, this party hood rave, which is, I have to say, the best name of a party I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm just going to say shout mm -hmm. out, you know. I, I, and you talked earlier about people being the disco ball on the dance floor. If you look at photos from hood rave, there are a lot of people <laughs> trying to be the disco ball. Yes. Not just trying. Succeed. They are the disco ball, though, you know. Um, yeah. I remember I moved to LA in August, um, last year and I was like, I just, I saw a hood rave. I was like, oh, I, I gotta go to this party. Hood rave. Yes. Um, but so we had baby write about, you know, um, what that party's trying to attempt in terms of, you know, centering a black femme space. What is the labor that goes into making a black femme space? Um, and also the obstacles that come with that, right? With regards to securing venues um, or, 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 or working within the venue or working outside of the venue, being a little bit below radar, right? Um, you know, um, we had a piece from a brilliant 
scholar of black popular music called Alexander Wehelier, whose piece is about um, sort of black femme voices in dance music, you know, and um, how, um, yeah, it's a voice that's 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 really heard and how do we center black femmes in sort of dance music in that way so yeah the whole the whole issue was really an attempt to sort of think about what it means to tell this other story other story about dance music or about techno or about black rave in a way that centers black femme voices who are um often not at the center of of those narratives you know and then and then to do it in a space um you know, a, a journal of criticism like Eflux, which is about sort of like thinking about, you know, the kind of uh, contemporary aesthetics and politics. For anyone who is listening to this and hasn't yet read that special edition, definitely seek it out. Eflux, Black Rave. And and I want to just end the discussion on, on the Eflux uh, special edition by quoting you um, when you were talking about uh, the gap between the existence of jazz studies or hip hop studies within black studies academic programs and the lack of a techno studies or a house studies uh, because the the work in efflux and otherwise feels related to this. And the quote that you said is, this is not to valorize the studiesification or institutionalization of subcultural practices, sounds, and communities, but it is to point out the gap and serve us serve as a call to think capaciously about what the black frequencies of dance music might teach us about togetherness, queerness, and practices of refusal. I love that quote. I think there's so much to unpack there. Why do you think there is still this lack of techno studies or house studies? And how do the queer nightlife seminars that I know you've taught attempt to address that imbalance? Yeah, I think it's a really... It's a really complicated one. I think that, you know, on the one hand, it might be that folks who are organizing programs might think of nightlife as not being significant or serious, might not take it as a serious space, might not take the music seriously or as seriously, um, you know, as sort of other art music. Um, so that I think is a part of it, you know, um, the, the, the scholar, Paul Gilroy famously talks about how electronic music is this kind of like de-skilling because it relies on uh, maybe uh, he ca he calls jazz like the Wynton Marsalis model, which is like, oh, I'm playing an instrument in a hall and it has notes, right? As opposed to maybe computer-based or electronic music that is maybe using loops or samples that you combine. And he sees that as a kind of de-skilling. Um, so I think that, again, it's maybe not taken seriously in a certain sense, although there are other scholars um, who do point out the fact that, you know, um, black folks have long been playing with technology and have been technology. Um, and so um, that's just like two sides of, of, a, of a different coin there. Um, so I think that that lack of seriousness might be might be part of it. Um, I also wonder even whether or not what what house studies or techno studies would actually accomplish you know like and to, not to take back my own word but just to wonder about like there's yeah. there's something about the fleeting and the ephemeral that actually might be really juicy and interesting and uncapturable you know um i know you've written about that as well in your paper dark room mm -hmm. um and and how the archival practices related to queer nightlife cannot capture the things that make queer nightlife so compelling and interesting mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I do want to point out that there are folks like, so for example, you know, like DeForest Brown's amazing new book, which is sort of like this archaeology of, of, of techno, you know, um, assembling a black counterculture is a major resource for this, right? Um, or, or Micah Salkin's book, Do You Remember House, which is about sort of queer house music scenes in Chicago, right? Um, and any of Tim Lawrence's books, right, which are all about dance music. So it's not to say that like nobody's writing about dance music, you know, but it is to say that in terms of like the university space, right? Like it's not recognized in the same way as like jazz studies or, 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 you know, hip hop studies is, you know? So when you're teaching a queer nightlife seminar at Virginia Commonwealth University, which I know you've done, or when you're teaching a course at Yale dance music and nightlife culture in New York city, what are you trying to accomplish with those courses within an academic context? And how do students respond to the histories and stories that you're teaching them about? Mm-hmm. This is one that I, that, 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 um, I don't, I don't struggle with it, but it's, um, it's, 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 it, 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 it it's an interesting conundrum because on the one hand, what does it mean to teach these things within the university space, which is all about, you know, the university is about capture, right? It's about capturing the archive, capturing ideas, right? Um, and so, yeah, how do you, methodolo- methodologically, how do you talk about these communities? How do you write about these communities? How do you engage these communities in a ways in ways that's not um, exploitative or, or that sanitizes them or the reality of like what's going on on the scene or what people are doing, you know, like the messiness of it, the kind of, you know, chaos of it. Um, and I think that in in my queer nightlife classes, for me, it's it's about helping, especially because it's it's not just nightlife; it's queer nightlife, right? So it's I want students to understand that yeah, you might be twenty one and be able to like go to the gay bar or club, but I want you to realize and understand the journey, the long journey that it took to get there. Like, did you know, for example, about you know the fact that. Uh, black folks in Chicago and San Francisco, often in New York, often had to show three pieces of ID even just to get into these spaces sometimes, you know? Um, you know, did you know that, uh, you know, um, the, the one of the earliest kind of gay rights protests happened in Los Angeles and, and, um, and predated, predated Stonewall, you know? You know, like, so, like, just to kind of remind students about, um, the broader historical context of nightlife and the significance of it and the fight that has been waged for nightlife as well as the fight that has been waged against it by governments, by the police, by legal control, by the moral police, um, to kind of give them a broader context for how and why things are the way they are so that when you go up to a club and maybe, you know, it says, you know, no backwards hats, no sneakers, you know, all these racialized politics of what you can't wear at the door, that actually is a racialized process that's speaks back way throughout the 20th century. It's not just something new that happened in 2013, 2023, right? Um, so it's about giving students historical context. It's also about introducing them to the music as well. So to the genres of music, you know, disco and, and house and techno. And um, I do like a little DJ workshop where I'm like showing them what's going on in the spaceship, you know, um, and <laughs> what everything is. And, you know, they, they've, in one assignment, they like, they had to listen to some mixes and like write a critical reflection of it. And one of them, we did one of actually a few times ago, we, 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 the midterm was, uh, I think it was Juliana Huxtable's RA podcast, maybe the most recent one. I had them listen to that 
and write like a reflection on it as their midterm. And they were like, ooh, they fell in, you know? So. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. A Juliana Huxtable RA yes. being assigned in a university course. As a, as a midterm, get your points, get your points, yes. you know? <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's about like historical context and seeing fun as like a tool of um, knowledge production, you know, that it's, you can have fun while you're learning, that learning can be fun, talking about the joy of nightlife, but all, not joy of nightlife, but also the contingencies and the things that have been lost and the sort of fight for, for that, you know? And I think that's what I want people to understand. I think that brings us back to, to your nightlife and residency at the kitchen, because you, you presented that, as uh, I'm going to quote from here again, a, a dance party on the urgency and emergency of black queer nightlife spaces. So there's music being played. There's an installation there, but it's the combination of the presenting the history of the beauty and the complications that come with this culture mm -hmm. um, in, in a space where people can dance, but also learn. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's very unique. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that is the overall pedagogical angle of what I'm trying to do both in the classroom and at the club and in the gallery space you know and the kitchen was really really impactful for me because it's how I got to learn more about Sadie Barnett's work um, and the new Eagle Creek Saloon project and um, importantly also the kitchen you know where it, where it is in sort of Chelsea used to be where the clubs were that's like where the girls went you know and not only that but one of the um walls like the back wall of the kitchen was the roxy which la which wow. later became a house worn worth surprise right um and so um to me it was just so important and urgent to be part of that project and specifically in that location you know and what that project involved was basically curating a series of public programs to amplify and animate Sadie Barnett's installation, the new Eagle Creek Saloon. So for that, we did a series of um, Saturday sessions, which were, we invited, um, curated in, uh, Sean J. Wright, Nita Aviance, Juana, and Tigerpaw in. Um, and they basically had six hours to do whatever they wanted in that, it was a day party, right? So from tw 12 to six, to sort of do whatever they wanted, whatever, conversations or people so for example Juana did a conversation with Jamie 326 um and brought in Ariel Zatina as a surprise guest you know Nita brought all the girls Kevin and Xander and Analog Soul and Will Automagic and turned it out you know and um Sean we had a conversation and th they had some great videos playing in the background so it was really about like um giving DJs the space to kind of play, you know, how do you convey your ideas in six hours, either within or outside of a DJ set? What else can you, what can you do with that, with that, with that moment? And it was a powerful moment because this was like into the, you know, Omicron variant. So it was like, ah, you know, scary and, uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty. A lot of uncertainty. But also there was like a a thirst for coming together, you know? I mean, and we had all ages. We had club kids and actual club kids, like literal children, you know, like who were there dancing, feeling it. There was a group, once a group of 16-year-olds who clearly were too cool for school, but they were feeling it, you know? So like it, it was just a really amazing project, um, a way of 
honoring these histories and um, speaking back to the neighborhood, actually. And what I think my favorite part was that, you know, that that whole area, like 19th Street, is like galleries now, right? And what we would do is that the set that was recorded during the Saturday session was played throughout the week. So you could come to the kitchen again, you know, um, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday and get a sense of what it was like. The, you get like the trace of what it was or what it sounded like the Saturday before, you know. And I loved walking up to the space and it'd be thumping, you know, like it, which is like it used to be in the 90s, you know. <laughs> and so to me, that's it was like a super important project. Yeah, it's, it's recapturing the space in its own mm-hmm. way after it's long been given over to finance and you know yeah in, in art in art space mm-hmm. even one as great as the kitchen mm-hmm. um i guess just to wrap things up we've talked about the black rave eflux we've talked about your own djing we've talked about these queer nightlife seminars and you know your your nightlife and residency and i wanted to give you an opportunity to tell me a bit about how all of these things have fed into your forthcoming book because I know that you've been working on a book. I believe it's called How to Go Clubbing. Maybe the title has <laughs> changed since I was last aware of that. But you know what, just to wrap up, what are you trying to accomplish with How to Go Clubbing? When should we be looking for it? Um, how does it differ from your previous work and expand on it in a new form? Yeah, I, so the, the, the project does have a new title now of as it always is with these things. You know, the title changes every night. Um, but the new working title is How to Get Your Nightlife. Um, and it's a project that I that really morphed during the pandemic. You know, it was initially going to be me traveling to different sites to kind of think about the work that um, local queer party crews are doing in, in sort of techno. Right. So how they're working with their local scenes and, you know, how um, basically night, how they're kind of animating nightlife in their in their own spaces. Right. Um, but because I couldn't go, I couldn't use university money to travel anywhere, right? Because of COVID, I couldn't go to university archives because university archives weren't letting any weren't letting anyone in. So I had to really reimagine how to do this project now. Um, also, at the same time that I reimagined the project, it was right around the Black Lives Matter unrest of that summer, you know. And I just felt an urgency to write something that was like not this kind of like removed study of the club. Like I'm gonna take you to the club and talk to you about the club, whatever, like, but actually do something that felt more urgent. And so in this new format that I'm working with, um, it really is combining sort of personal narrative and, um, you know, um, auto theory and auto fiction as a way to basically lead us through the iridescence of, of, of the night, you know, um, with the thesis about, urging us to seek pleasure. The idea that I have is uh, that I'm working through is that nightlife is about reclaiming your time in the pursuit of pleasure. Um, And so that's kind of like what I'm trying to think through with the project. I think we could all pursue pleasure a little bit more actively (laughs) given the state of the world right now. Madison, thank you so much for your time today. Everyone who's listening, make sure you seek out Madison's mixes Make sure you seek out their nightlife and residency and the Eflux special edition and also keep an eye out for the new book. When is that going to come out? Uh, stay tuned. You know, she's she's working on it. <laughs> um, stay, yeah, tuned. stay tuned. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Thank you for time. having me.
Thank you for listening to this Aria Exchange with Madison Moore. Shout out to Aaron Gonsher for moderating this conversation and to Madison, of course, for the wonderful interview. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RA Exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. If you have ideas for guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or stories you'd like to share, please send us an email at exchange at RA.co. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care. <laughs>